Hello and welcome to episode number 151 of the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. I am the online editor for the Northern Miner and I also help out with social media. And we have quite a bit going on here as per usual. Uh, we have a big story in the lithium space. Tom Azapardi has written that uh, Chile is losing ground to Australia in the lithium market and, and lithium development and production. So again, this is kind of thing you're only going to find on the Northern Miner website or newspaper. As well, we have a huge story out of Indonesia with the ban on nickel exports being moved up two years. Uh, they have now moved it up to January 1st, 2020. Trish Saywell has just posted an editorial on this, and that's, again, the headline right now of the Northern Miner website. And yeah, nickel continues to be a very hot story. We've been following this for the last few weeks, and as all the other metals have been kind of, you know, as far as the industrial metals have been kind of slumping with the economic uncertainty fears, Nickel has been outperforming, so who knows? We'll, we'll see in the metal prices section uh, coming right up that we'll see what nickel's doing this week. And we also have a metals commentary. Uh, we were just talking about how the industrial metals are sort of slumping a little bit, but gold is going higher. So we have a great commentary on is economic uncertainty driving this, the gold price higher? You can find us online at northernminer.com, and you can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner, on Instagram at The Northern Miner, on Facebook, LinkedIn, and don't forget YouTube, where we post many of our presentations that are at our conferences. And we're starting to do quite a few conferences here, three or four conferences a year. We have the... Uh, Progressive Mind Forum coming up, and that's at the Mars Discovery District in Toronto. That's coming in mid-October. And if you are interested in attending that, just visit northernminer.com slash PMF 2019. And I believe we still have sponsorships available. So if you are interested in sponsoring, just go to our contact page. You can see the link to contact at the top of the website. And scroll down, and you'll find our sales associates, Joe or Michael, and they will be happy to help you out if you are interested in sponsoring that event in that beautiful, beautiful space. And turning to the website, uh, we have this, uh, this big headline, uh, Indonesia bans nickel exports two years earlier, Trish Sewell's editorial. And in it, she points out that, uh, again, in January 2020, Indonesia will be banning all exports of nickel ore. And Indonesia is the world's largest nickel ore producer, and the news unleashed a torrent of speculation about supply shortages. And uh, one of the interesting things about nickel is that it's becoming increasingly important as an ingredient in the cathode part of lithium-ion rechargeable batteries, particularly in the emerging electrical vehicle market. Indonesia wants to develop this market. Uh, we have a quote from Bambang Gatot Ariyono, who's Director General for Mineral and Coal at the Energy and Mineral Resources Ministry. And he said, quote, the government decided after weighing all the pros and cons that we want to expedite smelter building. So we took the initiative to stop exports of nickel ores of all quality. He continues, if we continue free exports, Indonesia's proven reserves will be enough only for seven to eight years. 
Bloomberg quoted Arinoyo as saying, quote, the technology is advancing so smelters can process low-grade nickel ores and they can be used for batteries to help Indonesia meet its electric vehicle goals, close quote. So another huge consumer of Indonesia's nickel is China. So there is also the fallout from this whole ban. And what will China do? BMO Capital Markets' Colin Hamilton says Chinese buyers will, quote, be scouring the globe for suitable ore supply. So, yeah, and another interesting aspect of this story are the deficits. Uh, there is, BMO is modeling a nickel market deficit of 51,000 tons in 2020, 127,000 tons in 2021, compared to its previously modeled 26,000 ton deficit. So that's a full 100,000 tons higher uh, as a result of this and a 13,000 ton surplus in 2021. That was their previous forecast. So all of the nickel forecasts are being thrown out the window and uh, they are much more dire than they were previously. And finally, we have the Goldman Sachs commentary, which basically says that they expect nickel prices could spike to $20,000 a ton in three months. They were at $17,540 per ton when this article was written. So that means that nickel could go up a fair amount, another 20%, let's say, before falling back to $16,000 a ton within 12 months. So that's Goldman Sachs forecasts. Yeah, so you can read all about it. I mean, Indonesia has banned nickel exports before. You read the whole article. So that's available on northernminer.com. Also on the website, we have this story by Tom Azapardi, is Chile losing ground in the lithium space? And in the story, Azapardi explains how Chile basically has the most competitive, it's the most competitive place in the world to produce the metal in terms of its geological and climatic conditions. It's the world's largest and richest lithium resource, containing almost half the world's known reserves, according to the United States Geological Survey. And yet it's falling behind uh, to uh, competitors such as Australia in uh, the production of lithium. And there are a few explanations as to why this might be. Uh, One is uh, changing technology. Apparently, Australia's mines use different ways of processing the lithium. If we go into the stories, yeah, it gets pretty technical here. I mean, Chinese lithium processors transformed spodumene, the lithium-bearing mineral extracted in Australia's mines, directly into lithium hydroxide, a chemical which could soon overtake lithium carbonate as the preferred form of the mineral among producers of lithium-ion batteries. But there is, so it's, it sounds like it's a technological issue partly, but as a party also explains how it also has to do with government policy. Lithium is a tightly regulated market in Chile. And unlike, and I'm quoting from the article here, unlike other minerals such as copper, gold, or iron ore, companies wishing to produce lithium must first obtain a contract with the state. Part of the problem here is it's a bit of a bureaucratic problem. From the sounds of it, people are saying that Chile's, the government of Chile really needs to re- rethink its policy in the lithium area. So yeah, you can find that also on the website, and it goes into much more detail. We also have a story on gold. There's a metals commentary by Brenda Boo, and the title is Economic Uncertainty Drives Gold Prices Higher. Uh, in the story, Brenda Boo explains how recession fears, trade wars, and political uncertainty around 
Brexit as well as easing monetary policy are all combining to help fuel a move towards gold. So this is something that you're hearing more and more in the previous weeks, and this uh, gold is becoming more attractive. And so we're going to see what it's doing in the metal price section coming up here. But uh, if you want sort of a deep dive and analysis onto what's going on with the gold price, check out our metals commentary, which is also on the homepage. Further, we have also an Ontario snapshot this week. We have eight companies with mines and exploration projects. And so it's just a nice little snapshot again of what's going on in Ontario. There's Argonaut Gold, Canada Cobalt Works, First Mining Gold, Heart Gold, Frontier Lithium, Kirkland Lake Gold, Pure Gold Mining, and finally West Dome Gold Mines. So there's a great snapshot there of Ontario. And again, these are great, like if you're a geology student or into Canadian mining or you're in the Ontario area, it's pretty nice, simple, easy way to consume all of this information about what's going on in the, in the area. We also have a few company stories. We have McEwen Mining, who purchased the Black Fox Mine in uh, for only 35 million dollars two years ago from Primero Mining is now starting to develop that project and that's in the story McEwen Mining grows Black Fox Complex in Ontario and they're starting to drill it. The pictures are impressive. Uh, When you look at the Black Fox Mine this is no two-bit project this is a pretty serious mine they got going here and Argonaut Gold is uh, hedging production at El Castillo Uh, at the El Castillo mine, Mexico. And so ever since Barrick's famous hedging of gold at historic low prices, I believe it was at historic low prices in the early 2000s, hedging has been a controversial thing. Yeah, so Argonaut Gold is going in and doing a little bit of hedging. And so when you do that these days, you have to explain yourself. So that's what's going on on the website this week. And now let's turn to metal prices. going on with the metals. So gold on Tuesday, September 10th is at $1,494 even. And so it is back below $1,500 an ounce and about $36 cheaper than last week at this time. Uh, Silver is at $17.96. And that also is down from last week. And last week was at $18.51, so down about 50, oh, 55 cents. And platinum is at $941.16, a little above last week. Palladium is at $1,555.27, so that's a little higher. Copper is at $2.61, so significantly, well, significantly off its lows. Uh, Last week was at $2.53, so about eight cents higher this week. And crude oil is at $64.78, a little higher than last week when it was at $61.13. Aluminum is at 80 cents, a touch higher. Lead 
is at 92 cents, which is where it was last week. And nickel, the one we're all waiting for, is at $7.94. So that's a little lower than last week. Last week, nickel shot up to $8.10. So it's about 15 cents lower, but staying near its highs. When you look at the chart, the one-year chart, uh, nickel is having a good ride here. And tin is at $7.75. So that's up from last week when it was at $7.17. And cobalt is much higher at $15.99 compared to last week when it was at $14.29. And finally, zinc is at a dollar and five cents, so a little bit higher than this time last week. So if you were to take a wide view on this, it looks like precious metals are down a little bit and industrial metals are up a little bit, generally speaking. And so this would suggest that maybe uh, recession fears are not quite as pronounced as they were last week, but there are as many interpretations as there are people in this world. So uh, let's just, uh, we'll just stick to the numbers unless something really obvious happens. But it's interesting to see there's no panic in the nickel market. So this is good news. And coming right up, we have our Provincial Mining Panel discussion at the Canadian Mining Symposium 2019. And uh, Frick Els, uh, the executive editor of Mining.com, is the moderator. And uh, I've met Frick a few times, and he's a very nice guy, a very great guy. We actually went to an excellent Greek restaurant that night of his presentation. And uh, on the panel is Chad Norman Day, who is the president of the Talton Central Government, Steve Burleton, president and CEO of GT Gold, Dave Nikolishson, deputy minister in the, of the province of British Columbia in the Ministry of Energy, Mines, and Petroleum Resources, and Walter Coles Jr., president and CEO of Skeena Resources. So we're going to play that right after this musical break. We hope you enjoy it. It is a very interesting discussion on what is happening in BC mining. So again, something you're only going to find on the Northern Miner with this kind of survey of what's going on in British Columbia and the Golden Triangle, which is a very hot region with Pretium resources and on and on it goes. So take a listen and we'll see you after the talk. today uh, to discuss British Columbia is Walter Coles. He is the CEO of Skeena Resources. We have Dave Nicolishan. He is the Deputy Minister for Mines and Energy of British Columbia. We have Steve Bolton. He's the CEO of GT Gold. And uh, Chad Norman Day, who is the President of Tarleton Cent Central Government. <clears throat> Before I uh, toss out the first question, Maybe just a few numbers when it comes to BC. Just last week, uh, PwC released its 51st report on British Columbia mining. And I think the fact that that report is in its 51st year is telling in and of itself. So gross mining revenues in British Columbia last year was $12.3 billion. And that is up from 8.7 in 2016. Cash flow from operations, $5.1 billion. And that's up from 2.6 in 2016. The 18 operating mines had net income of $3.5 billion last year. And 
In 2014, that number was in the millions. It was 288 million. Direct employment is 11,280 people versus 9,300 in 2016. And I think what's important uh, for the audience here, return on shareholder investment in British Columbia mining last year was 27.6%. And that is up from 135 in 2016. Given, given that background, I think my first question is, and it's a pretty broad one, is what makes British Columbia a leading destination for mining investment? And I think I'll start with you, Dave. Sure. Thank you. And uh, thanks, everyone, for, for your uh, attendance today. So uh, I made kind of several notes, I think, that all speak to answer to that question. And, you know, I'd like to just, first of all, before I kind of get into those list of things, just talk about how important it is for, I think, sessions like this, but also for BC to just show up here, not only here today at this session, which is important, but just to be here in town meeting with people and kind of doing some myth-busting because... I think the kind of things you're going to hear about today are, are far too often not actually in the kind of newspapers or clippings or headlines that you get out of BC. You know, those numbers are good numbers and getting better and the trending in the right direction. But there's lots of positive things we are doing that, that tend not to be the focus of the media. So um, I think, you know, to start off with, we do have a mining industry. We're not aspiring to one. We have a mining industry, and you just heard some numbers, but there's 16 operating mines in British Columbia right now, mix of uh, some large metallurgical coal mines, metal mines, and some others. The, uh, there's a vibrant uh, industry uh, on the Placer side as well. I would say that we've got a few mines in care and maintenance right now from when times were not so good a couple of years ago and those are you know hopefully going to be restarted as well and then we have lots of prospects you know prospective mines and you're going to hear about some of them from others uh, you know that are here with us in town today the uh, exploration sector is also really thriving. Um, it continues to grow. We've seen um, a revitalization year over year in exploration, uh, just in the raw numbers, but also very interesting to see some of the major companies coming back into British Columbia, buying back into projects, partnering on, on major projects, and that very much bodes well for a continued growth in, uh, in potential mines in future in BC. Uh, our infrastructure story is very strong. A lot of that infrastructure was created to support the industry. We've also got a very strong and vibrant independent power uh, industry in British Columbia, which has also created a lot of infrastructure, which obviously facilitates exploration, but it's also there to support these projects, including most notably our Northwest Transmission Line, which is a, about a three-quarters of a billion dollar power project that reaches right into the, the center of the Golden Triangle in British Columbia that you're going to hear more about up here today. Lots of capacity, roads, uh, highways, but also ports, two major ice-free ports uh, in northern British Columbia to support uh, exports. Our world-class geology, the rocks speak for themselves, which is uh, all of those existing mines and investment I just talked about, but also uh, world-class geoscience. Um, we have a BC Geological Survey, and also independent geoscience that we, we support as the government with the uh, geoscience group. We're investing more. So the current government has made some significant investments coming out of our Mining Jobs Task Force. 
which in and of itself showed the support of the government for the industry. Things like uh, making our mining flow through share tax credit permanent, making our mining exploration tax credit permanent, both of which are very helpful for long-term uh, investment in British Columbia. Government's made $20 million available for my budget, which, trust me, is not a big budget to start with. So that's a very material increase to allow us to hire more people, speed up permitting, do a better job around you know, working with companies around health and safety and those kinds of things, and uh, funding for things like a BC Regional Mining Allowance, which is allowing us to be here today. And uh, last thing I'll say is, also a, uh, a real attentiveness, and I can talk about it more if people have questions, around how the government right now is turning its attention to overall competitiveness of the industry to make sure as we kind of continue to strive for strong environmental performance, we don't push trade-exposed industries out of our province uh, in that effort. So I'll stop there. Thank you. I think uh, we'll uh, get another government uh, perspective. Uh, Chad, um, can you, in terms of the territories of the Talton, what makes your territories great for mining investment? Yeah, so I come from a, from a territory that has a very deep history of, of mining. As you can see on my vest and around my neck, I'm wearing obsidian. Taltan Nation has been mining obsidian for at least 8,000 years. Our people have been in the modern-day mining for several generations. I'm here with... Uh, my father, who's worked in several of the mines, his father worked in the mines. Uh, when I was a teenager, I started working at you know, an exploration camp with BC Metals, and that eventually turned into Red Chris Mine. I believe last year, 50% of the uh, exploration uh, expenditures took place in Taltan Territory. We are 70% of the Golden Triangle. Of those uh, active mines that you had mentioned earlier, three of them are within or uh, right on the outskirts of Taltan territory. So in terms of uh, capacity and uh, support for the mining industry, I think Taltan Nation is you know, probably at the, the top in, in British Columbia, possibly throughout Canada. And since I've been doing this, uh, this work and taking on the leadership of the Taltan Nation, we've always been in active negotiations with new uh, mining proponents both at the uh, exploration stage with the exploration companies and then also uh, you know at the highest level with with some of the majors so at the end of the day the statistics and the, the history and the reputation of the Taltan people speaks for itself and I'm just honored to to be here and, and to be more involved with getting us more and more involved in this industry uh, for years to come and I see one day us being equity partners in all the mines that take place in Taltan territory, so. Right, and I, I believe uh, your territory is roughly the size of Portugal, and that gives you an idea just the vastness and what is on offer in, in British Columbia. I think we'll take it to the Golden Triangle now, and uh, what has attracted you to the region? I'll start with you, Walter. And yeah, but before I got involved with Skina, I was in, in, involved with the project in the United States, and and it was uh, and remains that project adversarial with uh, you know certain members of the local community and and all sorts of NGOs and it was a painful experience and to, and to come to British Columbia where the government's very supportive and and knowledgeable about mining and the same thing for the the Tultan, who we view as our uh, you know equal partners in this endeavor and and I certainly hope Tultan will will be equity partners soon and in some regard in, in our projects. So 
you know, this panel is a, re- is a reflection of that theme, the partnership between government, local communities, and, and industry to create successful mining projects that, that you know, deliver the, the raw materials that the world needs, but do it in a way that's environmentally sustainable and, and also generates a, an attractive uh, return on investment for our shareholders. Uh, so I'm Steve Burlton with GT Gold. Uh, we're a fairly new company. We've only been public for a couple of years now. And I've been with the company for less than a year. And what attracted me to the opportunity was really uh, the project itself and the potential. But more than that, it was the Golden Triangle and the prolific, the, the reputation for being a prolific mining area. And so to me, that meant that mines were getting built. And we've seen two get built, one right beside us, the Red Chris Mine, within the last five or six years. And then you have the Predium Mine that's been built and started recently. And so, you know, when you're looking at a new venture, you want to make sure that you can advance it. The other thing is very important to a young company like ours is financing. And, and you know, Dave made mention of the, the tax credits. The, the benefit as a junior mining company in Canada of being able to monetize those tax credits gives us a lot of leverage on our financing. So using the flow-through structure, uh, recently, we just announced a $17.6 million financing in which Newmont purchased a 9.9% interest in our company. And they were part of a flow-through structure that allowed us to get a 53% premium to the price they invested in, which is much less dilutive to us as a company, which is very important as a CEO. You want to keep, keep control of that. And, you know, that, that was very attractive. And, and when they made them permanent in the last year, that, I think that just made it even more attractive. And, you know, the infrastructure is always an important part when you're looking at uh, remote areas in, in northern BC and, or anywhere in the world. And the fact, you know, there's a highway running up beside our property. Uh, we have the power line to the Red Chris Mine 10 kilometers away from us. And uh, as you mentioned, there's a deep water port uh, not too far south from us. So all of these made this a very attractive opportunity for me. You mentioned... Uh Dave, you mentioned that your budget has been enhanced quite a bit, and I think there's going to be lots of work, especially around permitting and the regulatory process. Now, delays or long wait times for permitting, it's a problem all over the world. How is BC tackling uh, that? Yeah, and I think it's one of, it goes to that uh, concept I talked about at the end, which is, you know, the... The the question about does the government actually recognize that as an issue and does it care? And and I think in BC what you'll find is we definitely understand the impact of permitting delays and the evidence of the budget lift I talked about a minute ago is evidence that obviously we do care. And uh, my assistant deputy minister for mining is here with me and, and so we definitely are able now, and like it's just happened, our budget process is literally, we're just in the middle of the approval of it, but it's been announced and it will pass. And, uh, and then we can get on with it. But, but honestly, it provides an amazing opportunity to staff up our permitting functions, which I think will be very, very helpful. That said, it's not going to make permits easier to get. It's just spinning the machine faster because it, it is difficult to get permits, and I don't see that as a negative thing. I mean, it, we have very rigorous and strong environmental regulations, safety regulations, you know, all of those things. And... But once you do get a permit from us, also you don't have to worry about stability of that or that it's going to change over time. And so the investor confidence that comes with those permits, I think, is pretty solid. Chad, I know you are a qualified lawyer, 
and you've been involved in lots of agreements between uh, the Talta Nation and companies, I guess other governments. Can you give us an idea of what is your priorities when you go into these uh, negotiations and how do you approach it? And if, you, if you're sitting around a table, what is the sort of conversations that you have? We attack it from several different levels. We um, first and foremost got to make sure that the environment is, is properly looked after. So we have a very thorough environmental team that's made up of Taltan and non-Taltan experts. We make sure that we're involved with, with every step of the process and that's good for uh, industry and government because we have a lot of local knowledge that you know ensures that things are being done uh, better for, for the future of the environment. There's employment pieces, there's contractual pieces, there's revenue sharing pieces, and at the end of the day, you know, we have a very thorough model to ensure that we support the mining industry and the mining industry supports Taltan. So I give a lot of talks with, with other First Nations and, and we try and share that model with them because that's, that's how it works in, in the modern day uh, world is that you got to build a, an agreement that, that makes sense for, for the First Nation and then you have a, a fair partnership. So. Back to the Golden Triangle, I guess. When I first heard uh, the term, I thought it was maybe uh, thought up by some marketing department, but it's called the Golden Triangle for a reason, and this mining dates back to the 1860s. Between 1920 1950, um, the region actually had the largest gold mine in all of North America. Do you want to talk a little bit more about the historic mining and what it means for you, for your two projects, uh, the SNP and the SK? Sure. Uh, our two projects, uh, SNP and SK Creek, uh, we were able to either buy or option both of those from Barrick. And they were very high-grade, past-producing mines, but they, they operated in a time period when the A, the price of gold was lower, and B, there wasn't the infrastructure that Dave is describing. That didn't exist back when those mines were in operation. And I, I'll just give you the example of, of SK Creek. The decision to shut that mine down was made, I believe, around 2006, and it shut down in two, first quarter 2008. And if you remember back at that time period, the price of gold was between 350 and $450. So A, a lot lower. The, the other aspect was it was a diesel-powered mine. It was diesel and propane. And if you think back to that time period around 2006, the price of gold was over $100 a barrel. So it was a very hard, difficult time period to be, you know, from a cost perspective, and also a pricing perspective. So now we have much higher prices, and thanks to the Northwest Transmission Line and uh, several new hydroelectric facilities, uh, we now have really inexpensive hydropower that's seven kilometers from SK Creek. So we can plug into you know, power that's probably gonna run us maybe six or seven cents Canadian. And if, if that were diesel, the, the, the cost equivalent would be like 35 to 37 cents if it were diesel powered. So a huge shift in the cost structure for that project. And that's why we think we're gonna be able to bring um, SK Creek back into production. So that's, a, that's an example of what attracted us there is the, the improvements in infrastructure, but combined with the history of these incredible mineral discoveries. And there's, there are lots of them. So there's lots more opportunity to do what we're doing with SK Creek in other parts of the province. For us, I mean, when I joined this company a year ago, it was, it was really a gold-silver story um, based on Saddle South, and that's, that was the future of the company. And we had, we had poked a couple of holes about a kilometer and a half away that 
gave a, a bit of an in, a different indication. It, it was a poor freestyle, low grade at surface. And um, part of the history is learning from what's happened in the area. And if people know the story of Redcrest, Redcrest uh, was originally going to be a sort of an open pit, lower grade, but a smaller operation, but they, they sunk a deep hole in 2009 that hit very high grades, uh, copper and gold. And so based on that history, we designed a program where we were going to poke a few holes last summer in this area just to see if, if that held true. And sure enough, originally we were going to poke three or four holes in, and we ended up going 11 holes because we had some fabulous hits down below. We had a, an intercept of over 1.1 kilometers grading 0.8% copper equivalent, which is world-class hole. That's been very important, and, and Chad alluded to this. I mean, the, the tall town have been involved in mining for generations and generations, and as a small company, we're very reliant on the community around us to help us. We don't, we don't have the manpower, um, the knowledge, and so I think having the tall town work with us, and they, they are... You know, we work with them in many different ways. Uh, we, we hire a number of tall tan to work with us uh, during the drill season. We rely on tall tan businesses, services, and joint venture companies to help. And then, you know, just the support of the community has been very, very, uh, very helpful. So um, that has been very beneficial for us. And as I said, in, in two years, we've been able to advance, you know, two different projects to a point where a major, you know, well, the largest gold company in the world has taken an interest in us. So um, it, it takes a team to get there, and, uh, you know, we're very grateful for all the support. Uh, I think another question for you, uh, Dave. I know there's a mining innovation fund uh, that's also been set up over and above the Regional Mining Alliance uh, Fund. Um, now, Vancouver has a very thriving tech sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about what's happening in, in the field of mining technology? Yeah, that's quite an exciting, and, and you know, I mentioned that when I talked about the supports of this current government for mining. That was a, a nice chunk of money made available to you know do that over a few years to look at innovation, and and, I, and it, it's to be determined because we're going to do this in partnership with our industry and and First Nations partners. But you know, the ideas that we're exploring branch off in a few directions. For example, I mentioned earlier, BC is, is a jurisdiction that has a very strong kind of advocacy, well, we have a minority government, and the minority partner in that government is the Green Party. So for all sorts of reasons, that's one of the innovation angles that we're going to look at. You know, how, you know, how does the uh, GHG intensity of you know, products being produced get affected by what technology gets used uh, is one angle. Uh, looking at uh, working with TAC, who is our largest partner, obviously, and one in the southeast corner of the province, around uh, how to deal with issues like selenium and, and, and what are the technologies that might be brought to bear there uh, in that arena. And then also, you know, working with industry and hopefully some exciting things that we can be talking about next year here around how to be part of the emerging conversation going on around ESG in corporations and how do you know how environmentally and sociably responsibly produced your products are, you know, and can you track your product back through your supply chain to figure out where your, where your materials are coming from and do you care about that and if so, how do you track that and I think BC 
is a really interesting place to invest because I think that notion is going to grow. I think it's going to grow a lot as right. for all sorts of reasons. And it's yet another thing that lowers your risk of investing in British Columbia that you're going to have a really good ESG story. Chad, we've men- just mentioned the environment. Um, obviously, that was the first thing that you mentioned that the Tartan Nation look at. I've been up to uh, the Golden Triangle area. It is one of the most spectacular landscapes you can, you can imagine. Can you talk a little bit more about um, your focus on the environment and uh, your nations, uh, where you live? Yeah, well, the way we live is, is up there. That's where uh, Guide Outfitting actually started in British Columbia. We still have uh, abundant uh, wildlife populations up there. All of the I- iconic Canadian animals you can think of are in Taltan territory. We have the Stikine River in Taltan territory. That's the Grand Canyon of Canada. It still has healthy salmon populations. And we believe that we're very well balanced. We support industry when it's uh, done the right way. And we're very involved with uh, the mining industry and others from, from early on. But yeah, it's, uh, it's an exciting time for us. And being in that region, you know, we have, we have three communities. It's been a really exciting time with changes in you know, indigenous law and, and discourse. We're, we're at a place now where we're really able to build up our communities and our infrastructure and our capacity, and, and that's been fueled a lot by the mining industry. And um, yeah, people are, are welcome to, to come up there. It's a very isolated region, but it's, uh, it's our homeland, it's gorgeous, and you know, we're always working on more and more environmental initiatives to make sure that we, uh, we walk that delicate balance between supporting economic development but making sure that it's done properly so that we can continue to, to protect uh, the environment, not just for Taltan people, but for British Columbians, for Canadians, for the world. So I know uh, on mining.com when Pretium and the Bruce Check mine comes up, if there's news about them, then uh, it's always widely read. Uh, last year was their first uh, full year of commercial production. Dave, can you take us through the permitting process there and uh, how, how that, that worked? Sure, very briefly. I think there's, there was two First Nations involved in kind of, uh, they were front and center on the process we worked through with First Nations on that project. Chad was one of them, the NISCO was the other, um, both of whom were involved, obviously, in, in their part of that. I would say it's a great example of that tension that we have in BC between the environment and and expediting and supporting mining because there was a need to build a power line, which was not easy. I mean, it was a tricky project to get that power line permitted. The other thing that was quite tricky was it was a recent area that was recently glaciated, and so there was a freshwater body up there, which luckily didn't have fish in it, but nonetheless drained towards Alaska. And uh, there is a very strong and vocal uh, lobby presence in Alaska, thanks to the history of the pebble mine in in that neck of the woods. And uh, they turned their attention to us. And and the reason I mention all that is because none of that distracted us from the job at hand. And if if you talk to Pretium, you know, they'll tell you that the government was incredibly supportive through that. And uh, and in fact, there was a lot of days where uh, they needed our help with their investors. And we were there telling them 
don't believe what you're reading. Don't believe the stories you're hearing from, you know, those other guys. Uh, here's what's actually happening when it comes down to the permits and permitting. And, and I think if Predium was here, they'd tell you that the, the province, province's willingness to do that made a massive difference to kind of right. the myth-busting of, of what was happening with that project. Right. And going forward, that would sort of be the timelines you are looking at? No, we aspire to, to do better. And like I say, that's, if you looked at the, um, the work we have done with industry, that's one of the complaints they have is, is not that permits are hard to get. People are proud of having a permit. What they, what they want is to have the machine spin faster. And so that is good evidence of what we're now turning our minds to. We do want to speed up permitting, not, no doubt. And, and with the resources we now have, I'm very confident we will be. Right, uh, Walter and uh, Steve, maybe you can talk about uh, that I, I, process. I'd love to ask Dave, Dave a, a question. Do you think there's any possibility of seeing flow-through credits increased in BC? Yeah, it's. I mean, that's really a question for the finance guys, and you know who, you know, we've we've been advocates for some of the the recent changes year over year for a long time. The control mechanism for that is actually over the Ministry of Finance. But to answer your question. I think, yeah, because what these credit schemes do is they generate activity, and that activity generates wealth. And the key is turning these things into mines with, you know, we heard the statistics at the beginning of this session. That is persuasive to those people over at finance. We've seen it uh, in other industries. And, yeah, I think, you know, if, if we can keep the snowball momentum going, I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, possibility. that does it for this episode of the Northern Miner Podcast. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. And if you'd like to help the podcast, you can subscribe to it or review it in the Apple Podcast directory or share it online or email it to your mining friends and even financial friends. And uh, yeah, there's another interesting, fun show. You never know what's going to happen next in this industry. So We will be keeping tabs for you at northernminer.com. Until then, take care.